Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 161 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the new government UFO report. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode, because we're going to have your feedback on our recent episode on Operation Northwoods. But first, on June 25th, 2021, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence issued a report to Congress on what used to be called UFOs, and today they're often called UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. The report was written at the insistence of Congress, and it covered what the military and intelligence community has learned about UFOs in the last few years. So what did the report say? What did it leave out? And what does it say about the future of UFO studies? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, let's start with the headline. What's the big takeaway from this story? Well, the new government government report acknowledges that UFOs or UAPs are real. Uh, It acknowledges that we don't know what they are. It acknowledges that they are a potential threat. And it acknowledges that they need to be further studied. So all that's actually quite positive from the perspective of the UFO community. Yeah. And and why do we have this report? The Senate demanded it in conjunction with the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021. So basically, the Senate said, you want your money, you're going to tell us about UFOs. And who ended up writing the report? The Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, that's a position that a lot of people haven't heard of, but basically it's a cabinet level post. So the director of national intelligence reports directly to the president. Currently, it's a woman named Avril Haines, and the office of the DNI was created in the wake of 9-11. Among their tasks are they produce the president's daily brief, which is a security briefing they give to the president every day if he's willing to take it. Uh, It also coordinates, the office does, coordinates foreign, military, and domestic intelligence, and they've got about 1,800 employees. Specifically, this report was written by the UAP task force in the Pentagon together with the uh, ODNI National Intelligence Manager for Aviation. But it wasn't just those two people. Sometimes I've heard this characterized, mischaracterized as just being written by a couple of people. No, uh, really, they had input from 17 different military and government agencies. And what's the formal title for the report? 
preliminary assessment, unidentified aerial phenomena. So the title stresses this is just a preliminary thing. It's not meant to be the definitive word. Okay. And well, how would you characterize the attitude of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to the report? Well, at least some people in the office of the DNI wanted to keep this issue largely out of the public eye. Uh, they sort of had to be compelled to write the report. And the public version of the report is only six pages long with almost no detail in it. Uh, it was released on a Friday which is the traditional day you want to release stuff if you don't want it to get a lot of press coverage because you're going into a weekend. And not only was it released on a Friday, it was released at 6 p.m. Eastern time on a Friday. So after the business day had ended and they didn't really play it up a lot. Here's the entirety of the press release that's on the DNI website. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence today submitted to Congress a preliminary report regarding Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, that relays the progress the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force has made in understanding UAP. The release of this report is in response to a requirement in the Intelligence Authorization Act of 2021. The unclassified version of the report will be posted on dni.gov later today. And although some government agencies and websites are a little more forthcoming about it, all of that speaks to a desire to not really talk about this too much in public. And what would explain that? One or both of two things. Uh, either you could propose they're not they're still not taking it seriously, or at least some people don't want to take it seriously, or they don't want the discussion in the public eye, either because they're afraid the public would panic, some people might propose, or more likely because they don't want to tip off Russia and China about how much we do or don't know. Uh, in fact, that's the reason why there's a classified version of this report in addition to the public one. It's to keep our competitors from knowing the details about what we know. So they wrote the classified report and shared it with Congress, but they only released the much shorter one to the public. How has the, would you characterize the UFO community's general reaction to the report? I think so far, at least, it's largely been negative. Uh, the UFO community, naturally, since it's their subject of interest, they'd like the government to come out with much, much more about this. So there's kind of you know, uh, an inflation of expectations. And I've seen this kind of thing in other areas as well, where you have a long-term secret that eventually gets disclosed. It can often be disappointing. Uh, a parallel happened in the Catholic Church back in the 1990s. Uh, since, 19, since the early 1900s, there had been a secret of Fatima that had been reportedly revealed by Our Lady of Fatima to the three visionaries in that case, and it had been sent to the Vatican and it had been kept in the um, actually the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in their archives for decades. And there was all kinds of speculation about what it contained and people had all kinds of theories and some people claimed to know what it contained. And then in 1999, John Paul II decided to release it. And it wasn't nearly as apocalyptic as people had been speculating, and it didn't fit the narratives of the people who had claimed to know what it contained. And so there was some initial disappointment, but at least among people who were heavily invested in Fatima. And I think that that's natural in any kind of field. 
where you have uh, a long-term secret that gets revealed. It, it often is not as dramatic, or what gets revealed is not as dramatic as what people imagine. In this case, the report was very short. It's nine pages long, but it's really shorter than that because one page is just a cover sheet. Another page is an appendix with definitions. And a third page is just a listing of here are the things Congress asked us for. So really, the report itself is just six pages long. But I think there is reason to view this actually quite optimistically when you read between the lines. Uh Why is that? Well, much of people's initial disappointment is caused by the, you know, high expectations. Uh, But the report, if you, you know... I certainly thought, and if you listen to some of the more sober people in the UFO community, the report was never going to say things like aliens are real and here's their phone number and regular passage service to Zeta Reticuli begins Monday. Um, You know, personally, I'd hope that the report would be longer and would include more detail about particular UAP incidents. Uh, I would have loved to have learned about individual incidents that have not yet been publicly released. And I especially would have loved a detailed analysis of the flight characteristics of the UFOs, such as how fast they're going and how many G-forces they're pulling when they make a turn. Uh, All of that apparently is in the classified version of the report, but it wasn't in the public version. But even the public version contains elements that I think are real reasons for hope. Ooh, that's interesting. Like what? Well, first, they are taking the UAPs quite seriously. Uh, They are not simply trying to dismiss them or explain them away, like what happened in the 1950s and 60s during Project Blue Book. Uh, Instead, they're acknowledging right up front that we don't know what most of these are. Uh, Second, they're also acknowledging that they're a threat. They're a threat to safety because they're interfering with normal military flight operations, Uh, And they may be a threat, they acknowledge, to national security if they represent a breakthrough technology from one of our competitors. Third, the report acknowledges that one of the reasons we know so little about them is because of the culture of skepticism and scorn that gets heaped on the personnel who report them. People have been afraid to report these things in the military, and the authors of the report want that culture to change so that government and military personnel can report these things regularly without fear of negative repercussions. Uh, Fourthly, the authors of the report say that they are setting up a systematic processing uh, method for reporting, cataloging, and analyzing the UFOs uh, so that they can start figuring them out. This reporting system and analysis system is supposed to include not just the Navy, It also is now starting to include the Air Force, but they want to expand it across all the branches of the military and the intelligence community, and even more broadly than that. And they correspondingly are asking Congress for the funding to do that. So all of those are signs that they're taking this more seriously than they have in decades. Uh, Even though passenger service to Zeta Reticuli may not be starting Monday, they're, they're finally taking the issue seriously, which is good because whatever these things are that are flying around our airspace turn out to be, we need to know. What about that private classified report they gave to Congress? Would that have more detail? 
Yeah, and we get a glimpse of that uh, on the last page of the report, which is the one that is basically a list of what the Senate said the report needed to include. Among other things, it said, The Senate report specifically requested that the report include, one, a detailed analysis of UAP data and intelligence reporting collected or held by the Office of Naval Intelligence, including data and intelligence reporting held by the UAPTF. Two, a detailed analysis of unidentified phenomena data collected by A, geospatial intelligence, B, signals intelligence, C, human intelligence, and D, measurement and signatures intelligence. Three, a detailed analysis of data of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which was derived from investigations of intrusions of UAP data over restricted U.S. airspace. Four, a detailed description of an interagency process for ensuring timely data collection and centralized analysis of all UAP reporting for the federal government, regardless of which service or agency acquired the information. So the classified version of the report apparently includes lots of detailed analysis. I was hoping that some of that would be included in the public version, but no such luck. Apparently, because they don't want our competitors knowing how much we know about the details of these things. The Senate also wanted... 5. Identification of an official accountable for the process described in paragraph 4. Now, this one is key. If they're going to have a serious process going forward, someone has to own it. Someone has to be responsible for getting it done. And the report identified who that person would be. It's the director of the UAP task force in the Defense Department. That's the person responsible. And currently, that's a man named Brennan McKernan. Finally, the Senate said that the report should include... Six. Identification of potential aerospace or other threats posed by the UAP to national security and an assessment of whether this UAP activity may be attributed to one or more foreign adversaries. 7. Identification of any incidents or patterns that indicate a potential adversary have achieved breakthrough aerospace capabilities that could put U.S. strategic or conventional forces at risk and 8. Recommendations regarding increased collection of data, enhanced research and development, additional funding, and other resources. So apparently lots of interesting stuff in the classified version of the report. And I saw a brief interview with the reporter George Knapp, uh, where he said that the classified version of the report is 10 times longer. So it may be like 90 or 100 pages long. So let's talk about what's in the public report. How does it start? After a one-page executive summary, it starts with an admission that we don't know what most of the recently encountered UAP are. The headline in the document itself is, Limited Data Leaves Most UAP Unexplained. It then talks about the challenges that the task force faces in evaluating UAPs. Limited data and inconsistency in reporting are key challenges to evaluating UAP. No standardized reporting mechanism existed until the Navy established one in March 2019. The Air Force subsequently adopted that mechanism in November 2020, but it remains limited to USG reporting. The UAPTF regularly heard anecdotally during its research about other observations that occurred, but which were never captured in formal or informal reporting by those observers. 
After carefully considering this information, the UAPTF focused on reports that involved UAP largely witnessed firsthand by military aviators and that were collected from systems we considered to be reliable. These reports describe incidents that occurred between 2004 and 2021, with a majority coming in the last two years as the new reporting mechanism became better known to the military aviation community. So even though they heard about other reports, they focused on ones that came through what they considered reliable systems over a 17-year period between 2004 and 2021. And most, so more than 50%, of what they got came in only the last two years, because before that, people didn't know about the reporting system. All told, they looked at 144 reports. Now, Spread over 17 years, that would be one report every one or two months. But if the majority of the 144 came in in the last two years, which is what they said, then the Navy and Air Force would have been generating three reports per month. That's almost one a week, which is a lot. And that's without the reporting system fully set up and without a lot of people knowing about it. So of uh, then of the 144 reports they said 80 of them involved observation with multiple sensors so that's 56% of the UAPs showing up in the reports on more than one type of sensor why is uh, multiple sensors important because it means the phenomena that you're studying aren't just glitches uh if you see something with a single sensor system it could always be a glitch but it would be very improbable for multiple systems using different detection methods to glitch at the same time. So if you have pilots looking at a UFO with their Mark I eyeballs and it shows up on radar and you get thermal imaging of it, then it's a lot more certain that it was real and not just a mirage. As a result, the report concluded... Most of the UAP reported probably do represent physical objects, given that a majority of UAP were registered across multiple sensors to include radar, infrared, electro-optical, weapon seekers, and visual observation. So here we have the office of the DNI admitting that most of these are physical objects. They're not just dismissing them as mirages or swamp gas. Were they able to identify any of the UAPs they studied? Just one. The report says, We were able to identify one reported UAP with high confidence. In that case, we identified the object as a large deflating balloon. The others remain unexplained. Now, I can hear some folks in the UFO community rolling their eyes and saying, come on, a deflating balloon. But you'd expect some sightings to have conventional explanations and actually focusing on the balloon misses the point. Only one out of 144 points reports were explained. They admit they've got 143 unexplained sightings. That's the significant thing here. And they acknowledge that these things were making a dent in our military activities. They say... Most reports described UAP as objects that interrupted pre-planned training or other military activity. In fact, the report notes that the Navy encounters with UFOs including, included range fouler incidents. And in a footnote, they explain that. 
U.S. Navy aviators define a range fowler as an activity or object that interrupts pre-planned training or other military activity in a military operating area or restricted airspace. And anytime you have something interrupting your training and military exercises, that's a problem. If the UFOs are interfering with military operations, why have there been so few reports until the last two years? The report talks about that. Sociocultural stigmas and sensor limitations remain obstacles to collecting data on UAP. Although some technical challenges, such as how to appropriately filter out radar clutter to ensure safety of flight for military and civilian aircraft, are longstanding in the aviation community, while others are unique to the UA problem set. Narratives from aviators in the operational community and analysis from the military and intelligence community describe disparagement associated with observing UAP, reporting it, or attempting to discuss it with colleagues. Although the effects of these stigmas have lessened as senior members of the scientific, policy, military, and intelligence communities engage on the topic seriously in public, reputational risk may keep many observers silent, complicating scientific pursuit of the topic. So they're acknowledging that there has been a real problem with people keeping their mouth shut because they feared repercussions if they reported what was going on. In fact, as we should talk about in a future episode, there are even some who have been speculating that Russia and China have been using this stigma to get its probes close to our military operations, but making them look like UFOs to keep them from being reported up the chain of command as a spying technique. Let's use the Americans' fear of talking about UFOs against them. And that would be a smart move by our adversaries to use our own government's dismissiveness of UFOs against us to collect intelligence on us. Fortunately, the problem is getting better. As we'll hear, they're taking active steps to combat it. The report also said, The sensors mounted on U.S. military platforms are typically designed to fulfill specific missions. As a result, those sensors are not generally suited for identifying UAP. Sensor vantage points and the numbers of sensors concurrently observing an object play substantial roles in distinguishing UAP from known objects and determining whether a UAP demonstrates breakthrough aerospace capabilities. Optical sensors have the benefit of providing some insight into relative size, shape, and structure. Radio frequency sensors provide more accurate velocity and range information. The report also says, Various forms of sensors that register UAP generally operate correctly and capture enough real data to allow initial assessments, but some UAP may be attributable to sensor anomalies. So the sensors are not specifically designed to look for and analyze UFOs, and they may not do the job perfectly, but they are useful and generally reliable. Have they been able to establish any patterns or trends among the reports they've investigated? The report says, Although there was wide variability in the reports and the data set is currently too limited to allow for detailed trend or pattern analysis, there was some clustering of UAP observations regarding shape, size, and particularly propulsion. UAP sightings also tended to cluster around U.S. training and testing grounds, but we assess that this may result from a collection bias as a result of focused attention, greater numbers of latest generation sensors operating in those areas, 
unit expectations, and guidance to report anomalies. So this continues the longstanding trend uh, in UFO reports of them being interested in our military activities. You know, that's a well-reported phenomenon, but it could be an illusion caused by the fact that we're just looking at military reports in this case, not civilian ones. And because it's the military that has the high-end sensors being used to generate quality reporting, as opposed to civilians just seeing distant lights in the sky. What does the report say about the technology involved in the UFOs? Do any display flight capabilities that conventional aircraft don't have? According to the report, In a limited number of incidents, UAP reportedly appear to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could be the result of sensor errors, spoofing, that is deception, or observer misperception and require additional rigorous analysis. They also say, A handful of UAP appear to demonstrate advanced technology. In 18 incidents described in 21 reports, observers reported unusual UAP movement patterns or flight characteristics. So out of the 144 reports, 21 of them, or 15%, seemed to display unusual characteristics. Some UAP appeared to remain stationary in winds aloft, move against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or move at considerable speed without discernible means of propulsion. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency, RF, energy associated with UAP sightings. The UAP task force holds a small amount of data that appear to show UAP demonstrating acceleration or a degree of signature management. Additional rigorous analysis are necessary by multiple teams or groups of technical experts to determine the nature and validity of these data. We are conducting further analysis to determine if breakthrough technologies were demonstrated. So sometimes the UFO remained stationary in the wind or moved against the wind, which are not things a balloon would do. They sometimes maneuver abruptly, like the sudden high G turns that are being reported, and they sometimes move very fast, despite not having a discernible means of propulsion, meaning no visible engines. And they're doing further analysis at the task force to try to figure out if any of these represent breakthrough technologies, which, according to some reports, uh, they definitely would. So the report mentioned some of the UFOs doing signature management. What's that? It's basically military baffle gab for being sneaky and remaining undetected, essentially stealth technology and tactics. Uh, Signature management is done by aircraft, but it's also done by ships, other vehicles, and even by individual troops in the field. Signature management is considered one of the hard problems of future warfare, and we'll have a link to a page uh, about it by the U.S. Special Operations Command, or USOCOM, where they're actively seeking help in solving specific signature management issues. For our purposes, though, what this means is that some of the UFOs are being sneaky and using something like stealth technology and tactics, though apparently not full-fledged Romulan cloaking devices, or we wouldn't be seeing them. (laughs) Right, right. All right, before we get to what the UFOs may be, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Rachel G., Daniel K., Liana L., 
Rebecca L., and Attila H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, what does the report conclude that the UFOs are? It says, The UAP documented in this limited data set demonstrate an array of aerial behaviors reinforcing the possibility there are multiple types of UAP requiring different explanations. Our analysis of the data supports the construct that if and when individual UAP incidents are resolved, they will fall into one of five potential explanatory categories. The report then goes through the five categories and gives examples of them. The first is... Airborne clutter. These objects include birds, balloons, recreational unmanned aerial vehicles, or airborne debris like plastic bags that muddle a scene and affect an operator's ability to identify true targets such as enemy aircraft. And this is the category that the one item they were able to identify fell in, the deflating balloon. However, they haven't been able to show that any of the other 143 reports fit into this category. The second category they mention is natural atmospheric phenomena. Natural atmospheric phenomena includes ice crystals, moisture, and thermal fluctuations that may register on some infrared and radar systems. And these are types of things that could be responsible for some of the reports, like images only seen on radar screens, for example, but not with Mark I eyeballs. Uh, But uh, it would not account for clearly seen aircraft moving at high speed and doing sharp turns, which leads us to the third category. U.S. government or industry developmental programs Some UAP observations could be attributable to developments and classified programs by U.S. entities. We were unable to confirm, however, that these systems accounted for any of the UAP reports we collected. And this one strikes me as reasonable. The U.S. military industrial intelligence complex is so vast and so highly compartmentalized with countless things being held on a need-to-know basis that I can easily see this giving rise to UFO reports. After all, it has in the past. Many of the UFO reports from the 1950s and 1960s were actually classified aircraft projects like the Oxcart and the SR-71 Blackbird. But it's significant that the UAP task force itself wasn't able to identify any of these 143 as our systems. And they might not be ours, but... Foreign adversary systems. Some UAP may be technologies deployed by China, Russia, another nation, or a non-governmental entity. It's interesting that they mention China first, indicating who they view as the bigger threat, and then Russia second, with other nations only as a third possibility. 
It's also interesting that they mention non-governmental entities as a source of UFOs. Uh, one's mind goes to James Bond-style international criminal terrorist organizations like Spectre or Octopus. <laughs> uh, then finally, there's the last and most enigmatic category. Other. Although most of the UAP described in our data set probably remain unidentified due to limited data or challenges to collection processing or analysis, we may require additional scientific knowledge to successfully collect on, analyze, and characterize some of them. We would group such objects in this category pending scientific advances that allowed us to better understand them. The UAPTF intends to focus additional analysis on the small number of cases where a UAP appeared to display unusual flight characteristics or signature management. Notice how hard they're bending over backwards here to avoid using words like extraterrestrial or alien. Uh, instead, they say, we may require additional scientific knowledge to characterize them, but they've already eliminated terrestrial explanations, so that's what they're talking about here. At least they say that they want to further study those cases that display unusual flight characteristics and signature management, which is the important thing. So they do recognize these as a potential threat. Yes, they write. UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. Safety concerns primarily center on aviators contending with an increasingly cluttered air domain. UAP would also represent a national security challenge if they are foreign adversary collection platforms or provide evidence a potential adversary has developed either a breakthrough or disruptive technology. The report also says, UAP pose a hazard to safety of flight and could pose a broader danger if some instances represent sophisticated collection against U.S. military activities by a foreign government or demonstrate a breakthrough aerospace technology by a potential adversary. So they recognize these could be intelligence drones, and that would make them a national security threat, as would a breakthrough technology that allows their aircraft to outperform ours. And notice that the report says that the UAP task force has 11 reports of documented instances of near misses between our pilots and the UFOs. That is, cases where they almost had mid-air collisions. Out of 144 reports, those 11 would represent 8% of the total involving a dangerous encounter. So they're definitely a safety hazard by interloping on our airspace if in 8% of these cases, that's almost 1 in 10, you've got a near midair collision. And the report recognizes that the UAPs would represent an additional national security threat, as we said, if they're being flown by our adversaries. We currently lack data to indicate any UAP are part of a foreign collection program or indicative of a major technological advancement by a potential adversary. We continue to monitor for evidence of such programs given the counterintelligence challenge they would pose particularly as some UAP have been detected near military facilities or by aircraft carrying the U.S. government's most advanced sensor systems. Fortunately, they're taking the threat seriously. So what do they plan to do in the future? Basically, they want to standardize the reporting system for UFOs, consolidate the data, and do further analysis. According to the report, 
The UAP task force's long-term goal is to widen the scope of its work to include additional UAP events documented, documented by a broader swath of U.S. government personnel and technical systems in its analysis. As the data set increases, the UAP task force's ability to employ data analytics to detect trends will also improve. And they want to do some really interesting things in that regard. The initial focus will be to employ artificial intelligence machine learning algorithms to cluster and recognize similarities and patterns in features of the data points. As the database accumulates information from known aerial objects, such as weather balloons, high-altitude or super-pressure balloons, and wildlife, machine learning can add efficiency by pre-assessing UAP reports to see if those records match similar events already in the database. The algorithms would then flag particular cases for further review by human investigators and analysts. They also say that... The UAP task force has begun to develop interagency analytical and processing workflows to ensure both collection and analysis will be well-informed and coordinated. The majority of UAP data is from U.S. Navy reporting, but efforts are underway to standardize incident reporting across U.S. military services and other government agencies to ensure all relevant data is captured with respect to particular incidents and any U.S. activities that might be relevant. The UAP task force is currently working to acquire additional reporting, including from the U.S. Air Force, and has begun receiving data from the Federal Aviation Administration. And the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, is a civilian rather than military entity. So the task force is starting to acquire data from both civilian and military sources in the government. Although U.S. Air Force data collection has been limited historically, the USAF began a six-month pilot program in November 2020 to collect in the most likely areas to encounter UAP and is evaluating how to normalize future collection, reporting, and analysis across the entire Air Force. So they want to expand the collection of data across the entire Air Force, and meanwhile on the civilian side... The FAA captures data related to UAP during the normal course of managing air traffic operations. The FAA generally ingests this data when pilots and other airspace users report unusual or unexpected events to the FAA's air traffic organization. In addition, the FAA continuously monitors its systems for anomalies, generating additional information that may be of use to the UAP task force. The FAA is able to isolate data of interest to the UAP task force and make it available. The FAA has a robust and effective outreach program that can help the UAP task force reach members of the aviation community to highlight the importance of reporting UAP. So they want to get air traffic control centers and pilots of civilian commercial planes, for example, to start reporting UFOs. And here's a particularly interesting plan that they have. The UAP task force is looking for novel ways to increase collection of UAP cluster areas when U.S. forces are not present as a way to baseline standard UAP activity and mitigate the collection bias in the data set. One proposal is to use advanced algorithms to search historical data captured and stored by radars. The UAP Task Force also plans to update its current interagency UAP collection strategy in order to bring to bear relevant collection platforms and methods from the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. 
This is interesting for three reasons. Uh, First, up to this point, the FAA and other agencies using radar have been dismissing certain types of radar returns as just glitches. For example, if they track an aircraft size object that's moving way too fast for an aircraft, they'll say, that's an impossible speed. It must just be a radar glitch. And people in the UFO community have criticized this as throwing away and ignoring UFO data. But if the task force is now taking seriously the idea that there are objects with breakthrough flight capabilities, they could start taking these supposedly impossible radar readings seriously. Second, by going back into the historical radar databases, they could dramatically expand their data set. And third, by looking at radar coverage across the whole continent, they could indeed get a baseline of how common these phenomena are. Among other things, that would let them determine the degree to which UAPs really are interested in our military activities compared to other things, as well as identifying in a statistical numerical way other sites of UAP interest and patterns of UFO behavior. I also particularly like this line from the report where they say that in the future they want to provide training for the U.S. military and other U.S. government personnel if and when they encounter UAP, so as to enhance the intelligence community's ability to understand the threat. I love that. They want to provide training for military and other government personnel so that they know what to do if and when they encounter UFOs, so that we can better understand the threat they may pose. All of that would require money and man hours. So where do they expect to get all that? Like any government project from Congress. The report says consistent consolidation of reports from across the federal government, standardized reporting, increased collection and analysis, and a streamlined process for screening all such reports against a broad range of relevant USG U.S. government data will allow for a more sophisticated analysis of UAP that is likely to deepen our understanding. Some of these steps are resource intensive and would require additional investment. It also says. The UAP task force has indicated that additional funding for research and development could further the study of the topics laid out in this report. Such investments should be guided by a UAP collection strategy, UAP R&D technical roadmap, and a UAP program plan. So, like any project, they're saying, give us more money. And hopefully Congress will. Have there been any other recent developments that people should be aware about? Despite the way the report itself was downplayed, there actually have been. On Friday, the same day the report was released, Deputy Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks ordered the senior leadership of the Pentagon to develop a plan to formalize the mission of the UAP task force. She wrote, A recent report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence highlights the current challenges associated with assessing unidentified aerial phenomena occurring on or near Department of Defense training ranges and installations. It is critical that the United States maintain operations security and safety at DOD ranges. To this end, it is equally critical that all U.S. military air crews or government personnel report whenever aircraft or other devices interfere with military training. This includes the observation and reporting of UAPs. Notice how forceful this is. It is critical that everybody report it whenever this happens. They're really taking this seriously. 
The report also confirmed that the scope of UAP activity expands significantly beyond the purview of the Secretary of the Navy, who heads the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, and suggested process improvements to ensure timely collection of consistent data on UAP. Consistent with these recommendations, and to improve partnership with the Office of Director of National Intelligence and other non-DOD organizations, I direct the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security to develop a plan to formalize the mission currently performed by the UAP Task Force. This plan should 1. Establish procedures to synchronize collection, reporting, and analysis on the UAP problem set and to establish recommendations for securing military test and training ranges. 2. Identify requirements for the establishment and operation of the new activity to include the organizational alignment, resources, and staffing required, as well as any necessary authorities and a timeline for implementation. 3. Be developed in coordination with the principal staff assistants, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the secretaries of the military departments, and the commanders of the combatant commands, and with the Director of National Intelligence and other relevant interagency partners. All members of the department will utilize these processes to ensure that the UAP task force or its follow-on activity has reports of UAP observations within two weeks of an occurrence. Kathleen H. Hicks. So they're really serious about this, and they want the UAP task force to have the UFO reports within two weeks of each sighting. And hasn't NASA also indicated that it's looking into UFOs? Yes, former Senator Bill Nelson, who is now the administrator of the civilian agency NASA, has indicated that they've just begun to do this. He says, When I was um, in the Senate, I had the classified briefing of these Navy pilots uh, and the films that you've seen on television now uh, where the radar locks in on this object and they follow it, and they follow it all over the Pacific Ocean. And then all of a sudden, it's there right at the surface of the ocean, and then it's way up there within an instant. Uh, The pilots are just, they know they saw something, but they don't know what it is. And in fact, I don't know what it is. So naturally, when I came into NASA, I have tasked our scientists to look at this phenomenon from a scientific point of view, and let's see if we come up with any answers. Have they so far? No, I just asked them to do this. So NASA is also getting in on the act. Where can people learn more about all of this? We've done several previous episodes of Mysterious World that they can check out. In addition to looking at individual UFO reports, Uh, In previous episodes, uh, listeners can in particular check out episode 41, where we look at the Navy's ATIP or Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which was the predecessor to the new UAP task force. In episode 70, we gave an update on ATIP. And in episode 55, we did an episode on aliens and religion, where we looked at the theological implications of the discovery of intelligent alien life. So you can check out that for the faith perspective. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this new government UFO report? I think as the report indicates that UAPs or UFOs, whatever you want to call them, are real. Uh, I think that they likely have multiple sources, and the report correctly identifies those, including 
airborne clutter like birds or balloons, natural atmospheric phenomena like ice crystals and temperature inversions, U.S. government and industry projects that are highly classified, foreign projects that are highly classified, and potentially exotic phenomena, including possibly things of extraterrestrial origin. Whether the last one is true or not, I don't know. But the report is correct to say that these objects pose an airspace safety hazard, as illustrated by the near midair collisions they mentioned, and they may well pose a national security threat too, particularly if they represent intelligence collection drones or if our competitors have achieved breakthrough flight capabilities. So it's a good thing that they're trying to end the stigma against reporting UFOs and get good reporting across the military and civilian channels. And it's a good thing that the UAP task force is asking for more money and planning to dramatically expand its efforts because we don't know what these things are and we need to know. While sure, I would have liked the report to say more than it did, I'm actually pleased with what it did say. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener or the viewer? We'll have a link to the uh, government UFO report itself so you can read that. Also, that page we mentioned from USOCOM on with its discussion of signature management, uh, a document from uh, the Defense Department establishing the UAP task force, also the video or an, actually an article on NASA Administrator Bill Nelson on NASA's efforts. Um, actually, that one is the, a video. We'll also have an article. Kathleen Hicks's letter directing the Pentagon to formalize all of this, an article on the UAP task force, as well as links to episodes 41 and 70 on ATIP and episode 55 on aliens and religion. Excellent. Very good. All right. So let's move on to our mysterious feedback that we mentioned that we'd be having in this episode. And our first bit of feedback comes from uh, Basile David on YouTube, who writes, Dear Dom and Jimmy, disclaimer, I've been listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World since episode one. I'm a proud patron of the show and frequently interact with the two of you on Twitter, so please trust that the feedback I'm providing comes from a good place. I am just so done with two-parters. There's been quite a few this year. I tell myself every time that I need to share this with you, and this time I actually did, because it led me to not even listen to the episode for the first time. I believe there are three reasons leading to this. One, hearing a different story every week is one of the key elements that make me love the show. Two. There's never been a two-parter I really felt justified expanding the story over two weeks' time. I still listened to them and enjoyed them mostly, but overall, I just know in advance, two shows for one topic means I'll have to listen to more details that I don't find necessary, totally where it's purely a personal opinion. And the story will get lengthy. Three, demons, because it's always demons. <laughs> Looking forward to the next shows. God bless you both. So I really want to thank you for the feedback. Um, I try to do as many one-parters as possible. Um, and I look for ways to do that. Uh, for example, uh, in a few weeks, we're going to have an episode coming up on the Exodus. And originally, that was going to just be on when did the Exodus happen. But as I got into writing it, 
I realized I needed to talk about did the exodus happen? And so I my initial thought was to make it a two parter, one part on did the exodus happen and one on when did it happen? And then I realized, you know, I could separate this. I could I, I don't have to air those episodes back to back. Um, so I can, so I split it into two one parters and we'll have did the exodus happen coming up in August and then at some later date we'll have when did the exodus happen? So I'm looking for ways to uh, to have as many one parters as possible because I like that too. I like the contained, you know, one one topic per episode way of approaching things. Having said that, I can't promise that it's going to just all be one parters. There will be two parters, and even on rare occasions, there will be there may be three parters, like when we covered the young Earth question from the science and the faith perspective. Um, the reason for that has to do with the way we produce the show. Now, um, I don't get paid for this. I have a day job that I have to devote 40 hours to. And then I have a life and I'm doing this and other podcasts around all of that. And if you think about the production process for Mysterious World, well, for every topic I do, I have to research that topic. And that may, it that involves, that always involves reading multiple articles. And it usually involves reading at least one book, maybe two books, or even more on occasion. So there's a lot of around a day job and a life, there's a lot of research hours that go into this. And then after the research, or con in conjunction with the research, I have to write the script. And the scripts for these are typically 25 to 30 pages long these days. So in addition to doing all of those hours of research, I've got to write a 25 to 30 page script every episode. And then I have to edit it. Um, you know, I have to polish it and make sure it all works and I don't have typos and things like that. And then we have to record the podcast, you know, and so there's a lot of production time that goes into it. Now, the effect of that is... I just don't have the time to do 52 topics a year with all of that involved. And so what am I going to do? Well, we could just occasionally skip weeks and have no show, which is what some podcasts do. Um, we could have seasons where we bunch up a lot of episodes together, and then you'll have months where we don't have anything. Um, we could do those things, but I don't want to do those things. I like having a new episode out with something for the listeners every week. And, and I just don't have the time to do 52 topics a year. Um, now the solution I've gone to it, which I think is a reasonable one is we do sometimes have two parters. I find that, um, useful because I only have to do the research once and it makes it much more manageable for me to be able to produce the show. Also, um, I, I find the details that we include interesting. Now, I know everyone's mileage is going to vary on that, but on balance, people say that they, they like the information I'm including in the show. Uh, they, uh, what I try to do is an initial storytelling phase 
where I will reveal, you know, the story as it happened. And then we go into analysis mode where we talk about the story from the faith and reason perspectives. And often the more interesting stories need longer treatments. Um, you know, it just wouldn't be the same from my perspective if I took a really interesting story and made it really short. So what often happens is part one of a two-parter will primarily be devoted to the story, and then we go into analysis mode in part two, or at least cover most of the analysis in part two. And that makes it more manageable. Now, could I crunch it all down into one episode? I could, but there would be one of two consequences to doing that. One is um, the episode would end up really long. And I don't like episodes going too long. I'd actually like to keep them all at 45 minutes to an hour, but that's not happening, at least not right now. And it would be really hard to uh, to do shorter episodes that are complete treatments of a topic. The other thing is it would actually increase my production time because it is harder to write a short treatment of a subject. You know this if you're an author. It is harder to write a short treatment of a subject than a longer one, because you've got to carefully think through, okay, which elements can I lose? Which ones can I pull out? And so forth. And and so it would actually expand the production time for me to trim everything down to just fit in one episode. So I can't, I also frankly think it would mean shortchanging some topics if I did them in just one episode. I wouldn't be able to cover all of the relevant issues and arguments, and that would displease some listeners. I mean, we already get notes from listeners saying, hey, you didn't cover this aspect or you didn't consider that argument. Well, if I compressed everything into one episode, that would happen even more. So, um, so I'm trying to find the right balance. I appreciate the feedback. I appreciate that you like the show. I'm trying to do as much as I can to keep all of these different balls in the air and deliver a quality product. And I just wanted to explain that. Right. And, and thank you uh, for being honest. Uh, yeah. David, uh, that, that was very helpful. All right. Uh, let's talk about the feedback from Operation Northwoods, our recent episode. Our first feedback comes from Bernard Fisher, who wrote on YouTube, What's the mystery? Everything is known and in the public record. Not saying it's not a story worth telling, but it's not a mystery. Well, so this is another aspect where I like to occasionally explain the production of the show and how it works. I don't consider mystery for purposes of the show to mean an unsolved mystery. Uh, in fact, I like to cover a range of mysteries on the show, from mysteries that are completely unsolved to mysteries that are partially solved to mysteries that are fully revealed. Um, so that way it's interesting. We're not always looking at the same type. I mean, some shows it's like at the end of it every week, it's who knows what the truth is here. Well, I like to, I mean, that's okay. Some of the time, but I also like to, here's at least part of the truth. And then, no, we've got this one nailed. Here's all of the truth. I like that mix. Um, mysterious world, as the name suggests, is about what's hidden, you know, because that's what's mysterious and dragging out the hidden into the light is uh is i think part of the purpose of mysterious world so in this case operation northwoods 
even though we know about it today, it was completely unknown to the public before the 1990s when it was declassified. And so it sheds light on an otherwise and previously mysterious aspect of history by talking about the secret dealings that were going on or the secret plans that were being fashioned up high in the Defense Department during the Cold War. So, uh, you know, sometimes we'll have quote unquote mysteries that have been fully solved. So they're they're not really mysterious now, but you know, um sometimes I may even just have good stories with uh with a little bit of mystery in them. But always there's gonna be something that at least used to be mysterious. Okay. Uh Michelle writes on Twitter, thanks for this episode. Enjoyed it so much. I'm a Cuban exile to the US and I had no idea this happened. Had to share it with all my friends and family. And thank you, Michelle. Uh, always glad to uh, be able to help shed light on things that people didn't know about before, including their own homeland. And that often happens here on the show where I cover aspects of American history that a lot of Americans don't know about. That's for sure. Uh, Ernesto wrote via email, I love your show and the great measure of effort, research and presentation that goes into the making of each episode. I would love to I would just like to point out a factual error made in the Operation Northwoods episode. You mentioned that Christopher Columbus was a Portuguese explorer when, in fact, he was Italian. It is confirmed with a simple web search that Christopher Columbus was Italian. Yes, and thank you for pointing that out, Ernesto. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm writing a 25-page script to 30-page script every week. I don't always have a chance to Google everything to verify my memory. I was being misled by a memory of Columbus's dealings with the Portuguese crown. Right, that's right. Yeah, but all, all of us Italians, we have Cristoforo Colombo Day, you know. So uh, Christopher, a different Christopher than Columbus, writes via email, wow, I come from a Cuban family now living in the great USA, but I wasn't aware of the details of these events. I agree with everything you've stated. At the same time, I know of the millions of Cubans whose lives have and continue to be ruined and literally destroyed by the current Cuban dictatorship. Being that Cuba was by almost all accounts, the most economically advanced nation in Latin America with the best quality of life, only now to be mutated into an isolate island prison with many ill-informed foreigners believing the Cuban propaganda machine. I wonder if things would have turned out better had things gone differently. I visit Cuba often to bring medicine and other items to help my family survive, and I see firsthand the horrors endured by the average Cuban, places and situations unknown to the average tourist. Once again, fantastic episode. Thank you, Christopher. I'm I'm really glad that you're able to go back and help your family. I know how difficult circumstances can be there in ways that most people aren't even aware of. Uh, and it really does uh, make one wonder, you know, if Operation Northwoods had been implemented and the U.S. government had gotten us into a war with Cuba before it fell completely into the Soviet orbit, which was what was which is what Operation Northwoods was all about. Would it have changed history? Now we concluded in the faith, or how would it have changed history? We concluded in the faith perspective that there were real moral problems with Operation Northwoods, like targeting Cuban exiles on American soil with fake terrorist attacks, but really injuring them. Mm. You know that's just wrong. Uh, but if it had happened, yeah, history would have been different. And it would be like other situations where something wrong happened in history, but eventually maybe good might have come out of it, even though you should it should never have been done in the first place. 
Uh, Michael sends an email. Excellent review of the incident. I would be curious to know if anything from Spain has been obtained that shows there was an order or operation to sink the USS Maine. If no evidence is found, that would seem to support the combustion of the coal. So up to a point, I think you're I, I think that's right. Um, but Spain has had a turbulent history in the 20th century. And so the records may have been lost, even if there was such an order or um, it, the Spanish government might simply not want to admit to such a thing. And so, uh, you know, for the sake of good relations. And so I, I, I agree that not finding a record from Spain that would indicate the USS Maine was deliberately blown up is supportive of the idea that um, that uh, the ship blew up, you know, accidentally. But I don't know that it is decisive on the matter. A different Michael wrote on Facebook, once again, you brought an historical incident that I had never heard of. It is scary to think what could have happened if the suggestion were put into action. At the same time, I wonder if these were real plans or suggestions, or was this more of a tabletop thought exercise? Maybe it was not as sinister as you made it out to be. Well, I certainly think that probably there were different attitudes within the Department of Defense towards Operation Northwoods. I mean, they had been ordered to come up with a plan, and they did. Um, and, and some of them, pro I, I think were in favor of the plan. Others may have been more reluctant. And, you know, we talked about that on the show, uh, on the episode where we, where we covered Operation Northwoods, that not everybody may have been enthusiastic about this, but some people were, I mean, they did go to President Kennedy and say, here's this plan and we need to do it now in the next few months before Cuba is totally within the Soviet orbit. Uh, Flora wrote on Facebook, hearing stuff like this has me reconsidering how I feel about my conspiracy theory minded relatives. Yeah, it, conspiracies are real. A conspiracy is just an agreement by two or more people to do something illegal in the future. And that happens. That's why we have laws against conspiracies. So we when we hear reports of conspiracies, we should not be automatically dismissive. We should say, OK, what's your evidence? Because in some cases there is good evidence. Now, in a lot of cases, it's people's imagination. But in other cases, it's not. And this is a case where it wasn't. Four clubs wrote on YouTube, while I personally somewhat disagree with Aiken's assessment, I appreciate how charitable he is. Mistrust in government institutions is a growing trend, and this usually breeds paranoia. The paranoiac is one that is incapable of immediately presuming incompetence, and he often looks for evidence that fits their worldview. I myself suffer from this, and particularly because of this, I was resistant to the Catholic truth for the longest time. Stuff like Northwoods, or even Pearl Harbor for that matter, fuels this paranoia, and many understandably and legitimately see this as a precedent for more recent events like 9-11. I'm very happy that Mr. Aiken doesn't usually cover recent topics because historical hindsight benefits immensely these sorts of discussions. But I do humbly believe that Aiken's charitable nature tends to obfuscate some of these dark historical trends. God bless you both. I love your show and am an avid listener. Thank you, Four, Club, uh, Four Clubs. I uh, in particular appreciate a couple of the points you make, and not just your kind words about uh, me and Dom, but you're right that... Um, People often are quick to attribute bad events to conspiracies when really it could just be incompetence. Uh, 
there there it while conspiracies are real human incompetence is real too and that's often uh the the right explanation for a given thing um also i i i I, I glad I'm glad you appreciate the fact that we tend not to cover recent material because we really do need uh, historical hindsight to be able to accurately assess uh, many things. And Operation Northwoods is a case of that. If we had tried talking about it in the 1960s, we wouldn't have had all the data that was later revealed in the 1990s. And so we wouldn't have been able to make as informed an opinion about it. And for that reason, I tend not to cover recent things, though there are occasional exceptions. Uh, You're right that events like Operation Northwoods can raise questions about other events like Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And we will be talking about those both in the future. Uh, Sacred Heart writes on YouTube, the guy who talks in the beginning has an adorable voice. Ha 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 ha. There you go. So, Dom, you got a voice fan. I am. I am blushing. You see? (laughs) Awesome. Thank thank you, Sacred Heart. Uh, All right. That does it for our feedback. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, uh, since we were talking about uh, the new government UFO report, uh, we'll have some links related to that. One is that story I mentioned, uh, the text story, not just the video interview, but the text story about NASA starting to look into UFOs. Also, there's a report of what may be a new Air Force UFO tracking station. It's some kind of tracking station, it seems, being built on Florida's Gulf Coast. There will be an article on could the UFO report be a cover for a Cold War between the U.S. and China involving hypersonic weapons. And also a video uh, discussion of uh, arguing that the UFO report and all the discussion around it and and the current UAP reports are not uh, just a Pentagon PSYOP. That, that there's something really going on and that this isn't just government disinformation. Also, the debrief has a detailed analysis of the report that you can look at. And finally, if the aliens aren't coming to us, maybe we should go to them. So we'll have a new report on uh, a link to a report on a new proposal for warp drive uh, called the Lentz warp drive. And this one has the advantage over other proposed warp drives like the Alcubierre warp drive in that it does not require us to find exotic matter. Mm. Now, still, passenger service to Zeta Reticuli is not beginning Monday, <laughs> but um, the Lentz warp drive is an interesting new avenue in the physics community because if, for people who may not be aware, the physics community really has been talking about how to build warp drive and travel faster than light by stretching space. But most of the versions require us to find exotic forms of matter or energy that we haven't found yet. The new proposal for the lens warp drive doesn't appear to do that. Interesting. All right. Those are some interesting headlines. I think that should do it for us this time. Uh, We now appeal to you, the listener and the viewer. What are your theories about the new Pentagon UFO report? You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we'll be telling you about a woman who had an incredibly strange childhood. And when she was an adult, 
She was told the reason that her childhood was so strange, and it led her into a mysterious secret world. Hmm. That's a good mystery. <laughs> All right, folks, be sure to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's StarQuest to 66866 and just follow the instructions to become a member. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.